Welcome back to Interviewing the Interviewer, or if this is your first engagement with my podcast. I'm Eric Rince Nobel, journalism student at Northwestern University, and this is my podcast where I chat with various broadcasters, writers, reporters in sports media. And this week, I have the honor of bringing to you a conversation with one of the greatest baseball writers in the history of baseball writing, Jason Stark, current writer for The Athletic, also spent a long time at ESPN and writing for ESPN.com, and before that was a writer for uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer. Jason was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, a recipient of the J.G. Taylor Spink Award in 2019. Uh, a very prestigious award for baseball writers, probably the, the highest award a baseball writer could receive. He discussed what it was like to stand up on that podium in front of so many legends of the sport that he wanted to cover since he was a little kid. He talked about that and the inspiration his mom was as a writer, what the biggest surprise was for him starting out in the field even though he knew he wanted to go into it um, from a very young age and we also talked about what it takes to write a good story he's obviously written lots of them over the years so without more stalling for me here's my conversation with jason stark episode 11 of interviewing the interviewer i'm here with jason stark uh hall of fame baseball writer now for the athletic jason true honor to have you on uh, not too many baseball writers make it to the Hall of Fame. So great to chat with you today. Eric, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So before I get into your uh, professional career, I'm curious, uh, growing up in Philadelphia, right? Uh, yeah. Who, what, what writer or writers uh, really inspired you to take this on as a career? Well, I, I mean, I should start with my mom, uh, June Stark, because she, she was a great writer uh, uh, who... It, it, at one time, worked for a, a newspaper in Philadelphia that went out of business, but she had a lot of newspaper friends. Um, she later was the, uh, the president of the Society for uh, Female Journalists in Philadelphia. So, you know, this is, this is in my blood. She read all the great sports writers of Philadelphia every day and made sure she read something great that I read something great. And so there, there's really too many <laughs> for me to name them all. But uh, one guy who really stands out is, is Stan Hockman, who was an incredible columnist at the Philadelphia Daily News. And when I was a kid, I would write to Stan with all kinds of questions about stuff about the business, right? And amazingly, he would write back. And, uh, you know, I never forgot that. I always try to do that now myself with anybody who wants to grow up and kind of do what I did. Um, Stan's incredible kindness really showed me how it's done. And he was an amazing writer. And it's funny you mentioned that because uh, I had Tyler Kepner on the podcast about a month ago and he mentioned you and how he wrote to yeah. you and you wrote back to him and how he really appreciated that. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Tyler was, what did he say? 14 when he wrote to me? Yeah. I think it was like right around the time when he started his uh, baseball magazine. Yeah, exactly. And, um, like I've always used Tyler as an example of how dreams come true. Like I'm an example of that. But then I watched Tyler with my own eyes from the moment he wrote to me 
and I read his little baseball magazine that he was putting out and thought, wow, this guy could cover baseball right now for anybody. And I told him that. And like one of the coolest things that's ever happened to me, Eric, is because I won the Spink Award in 2019, I was invited to attend and speak at the New York Baseball Writers Dinner. And Tyler introduced me. And amazingly, his mom had saved the letter I wrote back to him. And he read it from the dais. It blew me away. And it's one of those magical moments about what it means to pay it forward. Now, uh, you know, this is something that you, and I've read this a lot, um, that you've, you know, you've wanted to do this since you were, since you really came into this world. Um, but what, but once you started professionally, was there anything that surprised you with the industry? Uh, well, you know, my, my whole life was kind of on a trajectory to do this. It's really bizarre that it, that it happened. You know, I always tell the story about this photo I have hanging on my wall of me and my sister walking home from school. Uh, I was in fifth grade. She was in fourth grade. And underneath it, there's a composition that she wrote for her class in fourth grade about her brother, the baseball nut. And it said, if you ever want to know anything about baseball, you should ask my brother. Like, and I look at it sometimes and think, this is crazy. This happened to me in my actual life. And so I, I knew I wanted to do this. I, you know, I went to Syracuse. I knew it was a place where people went to go work in sports media and so glad I did. I had a little detour where I, I covered news for a brief time at the Providence Journal, but um, I, I can't say there were a lot of surprises because Syracuse prepared me so well for it. But if there was a surprise, it was maybe how many hours a baseball writer has to spend at a ballpark and how difficult it could be sometimes <laughs> to, uh, to get people to, to talk to you the, the way you would imagine they would, you know? Um, I mean, some of the Phillies teams that I covered when I first started covering baseball in Philadelphia, they were tough, man. And, you know, I'm one of those easygoing people. I get along with everybody. Um, it really toughened me up to be around a group of people who were suspicious of me, who were wary of me, not because of me, but because of what I did for a living. And that was a real lesson in life. Here was the lesson. They're not your audience. When you cover a, a baseball team, you're around them all the time, and you start to think you're writing for them. No, I'm not. I'm writing for you. I'm writing for everybody out there, for fans, for people who care. They're my audience, not these guys. And so sometimes you're going to write stuff, you're going to say stuff, you're going to do stuff that uh, annoys them. That's a good word for it, right? And so you got to be tough enough to know that's part of the gig. One of the things that I think makes you unique um, in your writing is you have this really conversational style. And I know a lot of writers generally try to do that, but like I was just reading your uh, column from today and it's, you just insert like questions on what like the reader's probably thinking when they read this and things like that. How did you <laughs> come to adopt the style like that? You know, I don't know the answer to that exactly. I like people tell me all the time, you write just like you talk or you talk just like you write. And I, I think that's, that's a compliment. You know, I like, I'm very conscious of the audience. I'm, I'm very conscious of the fact 
that there are people who enjoy these aspects of baseball that I enjoy and enjoy them just like I enjoy them. And I want to have a conversation with them. Sometimes that's on podcasts or radio or television. Sometimes it's just when I write. And so I think that's, that's part of what just me, it's just what I do naturally. But here is the thing. Um, I grew up reading the great sports writers of Philadelphia. And I really something at a really young age is like, they let you do stuff <laughs> when you write about sports that you can't do when you write about anything else, literally. You know, you can have fun with it. You can laugh about it. You can make people laugh. You can make the people you're interviewing laugh, and they can make you laugh. And so that was a big influence on me. And then the other thing is when I, I realized I, I had a chance to actually cover baseball for a living, um, I, I give this advice all the time to young writers and anybody who wants to be in the media. You should pick out people in the business that you really love. And don't just read them or watch them or listen to them, but study them. And a guy I did that with was Peter Gammons, right? Um, and I would, you know, I would read Peter and try to figure out, like, I, I love the way he wrote this lead. What do I love about it? Wow, what a great quote. What must he have asked, what question, to get that line in response? What an incredible stat. How would you find something like that? Um, so all that stuff was an influence on me. And Peter was another one of those guys. Like he didn't just think about baseball in terms of the field in front of him, right? He thought about it way more globally. I mean, like he could drop any kind of pop culture reference, rock and roll reference, movie reference, anything could be in there. And that was part of the conversation. So. Like, I do think that was a huge influence on me, too. But a lot of it is just, it's me. And one thing I always tell, uh, you know, people who want to grow up and write is, like, find those people that you admire. You can even play around with trying to write in their voice, their cadence, their style, and try and write these, these stories in different ways. And you know what you might find? you'll find that some of it incorporates in the way you write and the way you think, but you're not gonna be them, you're gonna be you. So like you, just like, you know, you hear guys who become managers saying, oh, I learned this from that guy, I learned that from that guy. Like, I think that part of that is me. Um, I really took something from everybody I read along the way. Now, another aspect of your writing that makes you stand out is just like your obsession for the quirkiness in baseball. And, you know, yep. that's what, that's one of the things that draws a lot of people in is just, you know, such a large sample size of games. So you're bound to have weird things happen all the time. And I think particularly that um, it can become more amplified now, given the, the sabermetric era that we're in when you're writing things like that, that include a lot of quirky stats and whatever, how do you go about it in a way that still retains the anecdotal part of it and doesn't drown out that part? Because that's probably what the audience cares more about ultimately. Eric, that's really a great question because, well, I, you know, I love numbers. Um, and I, here's my philosophy about this. I think there are people now who are so into the numbers of baseball 
that they think the numbers really are the game. When in fact, what the numbers do is tell stories. They illuminate the game, right? And so that's the way I try to use numbers. Like I, I do stuff every day to make myself pay attention to every single game the day before, right? And I'm, I keep a daily logbook of stuff that's interesting to me. And I'm constantly asking myself questions like, when's the last time this happened? Or how strange was this? Or how many people could possibly have done this? And then I try to find out. And it's, it's the story that matters. It's not that number in the end that matters, but you can use the number to help tell the story. Like the other cool thing really now about the world we live in is, like I know social media can be a really strange and turbulent place, but it's also a place to connect with other people who share the same passions that we share. And uh, there's an item in my column this week that you probably noticed that came from a guy who tweeted at me two days ago. Uh, it was a crazy game in Buffalo, 14 to 11 game. And he tweeted at me, um, like really in the way I would have written this is, how could a no hitter get broken up in the ninth inning of an 11 to 11 game? Okay, I am in, I need to know this. And then he then explained it, it was a guy who had started the season by allowing zero hits in eight and two thirds innings. Right. And then he gave up a hit in the ninth inning of that game it was 11 to 11 at the time. And like, that's exactly the strange, crazy stuff that I'm looking for. And we, you know, we can share it. Um, I've, I've had a lot of times where I didn't know how to look something up and just throw it out there to people on Twitter. They'll figure it out for you. You know, I've made these connections with people just through Twitter that are amazing. And it's just because we share a love of this quirkiness of baseball. I want to ask you, um, you know, now you write for the athletic um, and that's kind of a, I think reflective of this new, like coming a uh, new, new style of journalism, if you will, not kind of deviating in a way um, away from newspapers, but I'm curious as someone who's worked now in both, um, what's the biggest difference for you writing for The Athletic compared to when you worked for the Philadelphia Inquirer? Well, of course, I had to stop at ESPN.com in between, but, um, you know, that, that, there's, a, there's so much <laughs> that goes into that because when I worked at The Inquirer, for one thing, it was, a, it was still a tomorrow morning world. Um, they were, you know, newspapers in general made a really slow transition in the, the, the 27 universe that we live in now. And so that was frustrating. Um, I began to see those frustrations. So that, that was part of it. Uh, and in newspapers, like there's a piece of paste paper. I know that they're now transitioning to digital, but there's still that printed page that the stories have to fit on. And like, if you read me, you know I had a lot of thoughts. Okay, and I, like I would write a column at the Inquirer that filled up an entire page of the Sunday paper, but ha you know when I get done, it was always hundreds of words longer than would actually fit, and so I had to go back and take stuff out and cut stuff. And like cyberspace is really big, so that's helpful. The Athletic is perfect 
for that model. The other thing about the athletic is we're trying to tell totally different stories. We just assume you know what happened. We are not going to write a game story and tell you what happened. Our mission is so different from that. We're thinking so much more global than that. And so that really fits me. You know, uh, I, I, like my stories are, are long and hopefully fun. They don't read like they're long. But, but like the athletic doesn't care about how long they are if, if they're telling the right kind of story. Um, there's no, you need to fill up this amount of newspaper page every day kind of mentality at all. It's just, we're going to do something great and unique every day. So as long as that's what we're writing, like that's fine. Quantity is not an issue. It's all about quality. I've had times where I had what I thought was a great story idea. I started off down the road to doing that story and realized this is not going anywhere. Uh, and then going back to my editor and said, I don't think this is the story. I actually think that's the story. Uh, it'll take me a few days to get, to get that story done. I'm sorry, I've taken three days to do this story and it's not coming together. That's fine. That's cool. Hey, we're, we're all about doing that next great thing. We're not about you haven't written since Tuesday. I'm glad you mentioned uh, story ideas and stuff like that. You know, as someone who's written tons of stories throughout your career, what makes a good story in your in your eyes? Like when you look back and say this is a good story, what does it include? And I know that can be different for each story, but are there any general things? Um, that's a hard one. <laughs> you know, uh, like my rules of thumb is, would be when you write anything, you should tell people something they didn't know. When you write anything if possible, you should entertain them. Some stories are serious, and so that's not the time to entertain. But those two things are really important. And the third thing is, I think you really have to always be aware of your audience and try to think like them. Now, like I'm a fan of baseball, right? I care about baseball as a sport. Um, and I like to think that I think about things the way fans do. But, but the other thing is I'm also trying to think over the horizon and look at the sport from 30,000 feet all the time. And so if you can take that big sweeping view that maybe people haven't thought through yet, you can advance that story you're telling beyond the way most people have thought about it. If you can somehow figure out a way to report and get those details that people don't know. Like all those things are what makes a story special. And the other thing is I feel like be specific as possible. Um, when, when you're telling any story, details matter. And to, to learn those details, you have to work at it. You have to read, you, you have to do more than just assume you know. You have to make that extra call or that extra text or that extra email. Or back in the days when we actually talked to people, human beings at the park, you know, you went and found that other person at, at his locker and asked those questions. 
And so all of that is what makes a great story. But it, it starts with being a fan and being a human being and trying to never forget how other fans and other humans think. And that's something you mentioned at the beginning when you said, you know, you, you weren't, you're not writing for the players, you're writing for, for your audience, that's the fans. Yeah, exactly. um, I'm curious, as someone who's been in the sport for a while now, uh, what, what's the difference? Is there a big difference between the players' view of you when you first started compared to now? I'm sure there probably is. Uh, boy, it's evolved so much, so much. Um, you know, there was players didn't know as much about the media when I first started. And I don't know if that was good or bad, but as I said, they, I think it made them wary. <laughs> um, the other thing was, like, there were fewer eyeballs on them in general, fewer eyeballs on the interaction between, say, the manager and reporters. Uh, now, like, every post-game managerial session is a TV show. It's on the post-game TV show. And so managers are much smoother, right? They might not tell you quite as much, but they're much smoother about how they deliver it. Um, when I first started, those sessions were walking into the manager's office after a game, sometimes amid incredible tension because of what had just happened, you know, some crushing loss. Uh, and like the, the, the sessions in the office were way different than what you're watching now. I mean, managers, managers could yell at you. They could curse at you. They could throw you out of the office. It, it happened to me. And uh, just for, what, for a question that you might have thought was innocent. Um, so there, there's all of that. And then players could be way more combative because when, you know, there weren't a million cameras around. There weren't people with phones. They could video those interactions. There was, wasn't social media. They, uh, their vehicle to reach the fans were us. Uh, now they don't need us necessarily, right? They, uh, they can communicate on their own players, Tribune, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, million, million ways for them to deliver their own message if they want to. So like the evolution is a book, it's a movie. It's, it's not a two minute answer to your question. Now you've also, uh, gotten had the privilege of voting for the baseball hall of fame each year um and you had the distinct honor of getting inducted just last year what was it like for you to stand up at that podium and, and give that speech uh amazing uh, you know i i write for a living i've spoken for a living uh, i've given speeches i've never written that speech i've never delivered that speech and it was hard uh, you know, I like I spent eight weeks working on that speech. Now, not every second, right? But like, you only get to do that once. If you screwed up, you can't say, "Well, I'll give it again next year." So, like, what did I want to be in it? I studied other speeches. I read a million speeches. I watched them. I asked people who had given those speeches. Um, I, you know, I wrote down stuff that I thought I wanted in the speech. I wrote an entire speech. Walked away from it for a week, didn't think about it, didn't read it again, came back to it, looked at it and said, 
this this isn't the right speech. It's not personal enough. It's me trying to pay homage to a million things and people, and it's not enough about me. So I I wouldn't say I ripped up the entire speech, but I'll, you know most of it, and then I worked on it again up till the day I gave it. You know, I was still messing with it the, the morning of the speech because um, I wanted it to be special. I wanted it to pay homage to my profession and the people who do my job. I wanted to express my love of baseball. I, uh, I wanted to express my affection for Cooperstown and the hall. And, I, you know, I wanted to talk about my story and the people I love. And it was incredible to have that experience, not just of giving the speech, but just the entire, the entire experience. Spent a week in Cooperstown, and it was just memories for a lifetime. But not just for me, you know, for so many people that I care about and who care about me. And like we had over a hundred friends and family come to Cooperstown just for me. It doesn't include my friends in baseball, my friends in the media. They came for me. It was unbelievable. Uh, to share it with those people. Um, so there was all that. And then just the way like the greatest living players on earth treated me is something I'll never forget from the moment on Thursday in the Otisaga hotel that Wade Boggs walked up to me, stuck out his hand and said, welcome to the club. They treated me like I was one of them. And like, that's not accurate. <laughs> Wade Boggs got 3,000 more hits than me, but it was so cool. And, I, you know, I had this experience where right, that Saturday was the day that I gave my speech. And so the way it works is all of us who are going to sit on the stage assemble in a, in a room at the Otis Saga and wait to get on the bus and, you know, head over to Doubleday Field. And so I, I was first one there, wasn't going to be late for my own speech. And so I just sitting around talking to the people from the Hall of Fame and then players started to walk in and Ken Griffey came in and said hello. And, you know, there's this procession of people and you're saying hi. And um, all of a sudden, you know, we're about like 15, 20 minutes away from leaving. And I looked around at the room and realized who else was in the room. You know, it was a bunch of living legends. And also, I was there. <laughs> and I, all of a sudden, it hit me, this feeling, what am I doing? What am I doing in this room with these people? And I couldn't breathe for a minute. So I got up. I went to the corner of the room. I was looking around, trying to take it in. And I thought, I need to take a walk just to breathe. And so I started walking down the hall just to the men's room. And the next thing I know, Jeff Bagwell is walking along beside me. And I've known Jeff forever. And he says to me, how are you doing? <laughs> I said, Jeff, I'm doing okay. But I, as I look around the room, I can't help but ask myself, what am I doing in this room with these people? And he said, oh, yeah, me too. And I said, wait a second, you too. You realize you're a Hall of Famer, right? And he said, oh, yeah, I know. But I don't think of myself as a Hall of Famer the way those guys are Hall of Famers. And that helped me so much to realize it's not just me. Other players think that way about the legends around them. And um, it, it was cool. They, like, nobody in that group ever treated me like 
I was different from them. Uh, I'll never forget it. And it's one of the most special, memorable, indelible things that has ever happened to me. So that was Jason Stark of The Athletic. Truly a privilege to be able to chat with him. It was great that he was able to carve out some time in a very busy schedule to share some advice with me and anyone who is listening. Love the story he told about Tyler Kepner. For those of you who haven't listened yet, I interviewed Tyler, uh, the national baseball writer for the New York Times, about a month and a half ago or so, so you should definitely check out that episode. Tyler also grew up in Philadelphia and was a big fan of Jason Stark growing up, as uh, I alluded to during my conversation with Jason. And uh, Tyler wrote to him, Jason responded, and uh, the fact that Tyler was able to introduce Jason and read that letter that, that was written to him uh, is, is some pretty cool stuff. So thanks for listening to episode 11 of Interviewing the Interview with Jason Stark. I'm Eric Rinson lobel Check back next week for another episode. Uh, back to the broadcasting world next week. And the new voice of the Chicago Bulls joins us right here. <laughs>